If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 1. And I'll be reading verses 16 to 20. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the grace that has been showered upon us in Christ. That in Him, that the wrath of God was placed, that we might be delivered, Lord, from Your wrath, and we might walk in the freedom and grace of Your love. Thank You, God, for what You've done for us in Him. And Lord, we pray that, that we would, God, as we look at Your Word, understand You for who You are and receive You, God, not as the God that we want You to be, but the God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes we talk about people being nice and then maybe throw in the, um, the exception, but, but he gets angry. And we see that as being a contradiction. He's a nice guy. But he gets angry. If we were to say he is a good man, then him being good should not be seen as a contradiction to him being angry on occasion. Nice and angry are maybe contradictions. Good and angry are not. God is good. And when the scriptures tell us that God is good, it doesn't mean just simply that He is benevolent, which He is. Because God is good and benevolent, He loves us, He gave His Son for us, He extends His grace to us. But when the scriptures speak of God being good, it also means that God is holy and righteous. That He is wholly upright. There is no evil in Him. There is no darkness in Him. God is truly, morally upright. And being a good, holy, righteous God, He has to therefore be just. Because how can He be holy and righteous without also being just? His holiness demands justice. And because God is holy and righteous and just, His justice demands wrath. God gets angry. I looked up, again, just for, out of curiosity, how many times the anger of God and the wrath of God are mentioned in Scripture. It comes close to 400 times. It is a major subject in Scripture. 
It is not something we can easily ignore. He is not, that is not what I'd like to imagine God as being. But it is the God that is revealed in Scripture. Almost 400 times. Either angry or the wrath of God. I love my kids. And um, when they were little, I, I wanted them to know that I enjoyed them. And, and would love, love spending time with them. Just playing with them, taking them fishing, whatever. Just enjoying my kids. But I also knew that I had to teach them certain things. And among those were work hard as unto the Lord. So we would work Saturday mornings. And I would have them working alongside me. And there were times when all of a sudden I'd look around and one or more of them were gone. And the work wasn't done yet. And so I'd go looking. And I might find them upstairs watching Saturday morning cartoons or something. And I'd say, I don't remember telling you you could leave. Come back down and work. And then maybe it happened on occasion, same day. I'd turn around and one or more of them was gone. And now I'm getting angry. The same dad who loves his kids, enjoys his kids, on occasion was angry with his kids. Now I know there are probably a lot of times that I was not exhibiting the righteous anger of God. We never need to fear that with God. God is angry and he never goes over the top. His anger His wrath is always expressed justly, righteously, because it comes out of his justice and out of his righteousness. But we should make no mistake. If we claim that God is good, and he is, then we must accept that he is a God of wrath, and he is. We've been told already by Paul in this letter that He was eager to preach the gospel and felt obliged to preach the gospel. And he was not ashamed of the gospel because he knew it was the power of God unto salvation. And one of the things that was motivating him, we know he was motivated by the love of God. He told us that. But he was also motivated by the reality of the wrath of God. And God being good in his benevolence, he has provided a way of escape. And that being... Jesus Christ, His righteousness, who gave Himself for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through faith in Him. So God has not left us without a way to, of salvation and a way to move from His wrath into His benevolence. It was in benevolence that He gave His Son. But it is in His moral excellence in His holiness and righteousness, that He must punish sin. He must. He is a just God. Verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed. Not will be, though that would be accurate. If Paul had said, The wrath of God is going to be revealed, no one could argue. There is much in Scripture that talks about a coming wrath. That says that when Jesus comes to this earth again, he will come in wrath. 
that one day all the nations will stand before him and they will have to face the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. That's coming in the future. That same future wrath is spoken to in chapter 2 of Romans. Look at verse 5. It says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So there we, we can be storing up wrath, and there is a day of wrath that is coming during the day of judgment. But this verse 18 is not talking about a future wrath, but a present, now wrath. The wrath of God is And in the Greek tense, it is being now revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we ask, how is it being revealed now? Is God raining fire and brimstone down? Is he destroying cities like he did Sodom and Gomorrah? And most of us would be very hesitant to say that he is. But there's another specific way that God's wrath is presently being revealed that we never even think about today. And that's where Paul's going with it in this chapter. But it is specifically revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now that tells us that you can't suppress something that you don't have. And we often wonder, how can God rightly punish people who have never heard concerning Jesus? This is not about hearing about Jesus. This is about suppressing the truth that you do have, whatever that might be, in unrighteousness. That I would rather have my way and ignore what I know is right than do what I know that God would have me to do. And then he speaks about what they all know. The truth that all men are inclined to suppress. Verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. That speaks of conscience. For God made it evident to them. And in that he means creation, which is verse 20. Every person has been born in the image of God. And in the image of God, they have a conscience which witnesses to them of what is right and what is wrong. And we know the secular anthropologists will tell us all day long that morality is a social construct and that every every culture on the face of the earth has always had its own ideas of what is right and what is wrong. One culture will say adultery is sin, and another culture might say adultery is a virtue. Maybe they're right on particular issues, but many people would refute even those things. But no anthropologist can disagree that every culture has a sense of right and wrong. Every culture, every person who has ever been born has a sense of conscience, of right and wrong. And everyone's conscience tells them without exception. Right deserves to be rewarded and wrong deserves to be punished. Now we may argue about what right and wrong are, but nobody argues that right is is rewarded and wrong is punished. And there is great universality on most matters of conscience. Nobody's yet found a culture that rewarded cowardice. 
for example. But it rewards bravery and sacrifice. There is much universality in matters of conscience. Conscience is a witness to the fact that we have been made by God in the image of God. And then creation. I think it probably becomes possible for people to lose their sense of conscience. The conscience is there, but they can deaden it, Scripture says. Where it's no longer active, they're not responsive to it anymore, and for all practical purposes, it doesn't even seem to exist. But they cannot deaden the witness of God in creation. We try. Try to stay indoors and surround ourselves with all kinds of man-made technology, and, and, and just as it were, just deaden ourselves from the reality of God who is around us. But, even in that, every bit of technology, every bit of science that has ever been discovered, it all comes back, it is all based upon a principle of, of, of uniformity and of predictability. A certain laws. No technology works without laws that have been written into nature. And every... Um, scientific, scientific endeavor is presuming upon the existence of fixed laws. Where did those laws come from? Evolution says that everything is changing. But even that theory of evolution has to be based upon the constant of fixed laws where things can be evaluated. Everything that sci- the scientific endeavor does, presumes, starts from the, the acknowledgement that there are fixed principles that have always been there. In Psalm 19, David speaks about the difference between revelation or the manifestation of God in creation and the manifestation of God through His spoken word. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there, nor are there words. It's not, it's not a revelation of God that is audible. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through the earth. Their utterances to the end of the world. In them he placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens to the other, and its circuit to one end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. All of that is about creation. And in the very next verse, and the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It is the written word of God that he has given for restoring our soul. But in creation all around us, God is declaring his glory. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. We can act like it's not there. We can say that there is no God. But in saying that, we have to deny the two witnesses that God has given to every person who has ever been born. And that is his conscience and creation. God likes to have more than one witness. And in in virtually everything that God has ever done, he's had at least two witnesses. And even the person who is born with no chance of ever hearing concerning Jesus, as it would seem to us, God has given him at least two witnesses to the fact that there is a God. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature 
have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. On the basis of creation, man can know that there is a God. He can know what some of his attributes are. He can know that he is a God of eternal power with a divine nature. And he was without excuse to deny these things. That is not sufficient evidence to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born of a virgin, died for our sins, and rose again from the dead. Those are historical things that creation cannot tell us, nor conscience. It takes another form of revelation. We call that special revelation. But the revelation that God is speaking of here is not for salvation, but it is a revelation which is, is sufficient to know there is a God. And if there is a God, and we are not God, then we have to be accountable to Him. And to suppress that, that blaring truth is to suppress it in unrighteousness merely for, so that we can have our own way. And God says it is worth His wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven right now against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The truth that there is a God and we are accountable to Him. Verse 21 through the end of the chapter, he gets more specific about how exactly men suppress that truth, what it's looking like. Verse 21, for even though they knew God. Now he doesn't mean there they knew him personally. They're in a personal relationship with him. But rather that they know that there is a God. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. It all begins with, in my determination as an unbeliever to not be under God, to not be told what to do, that I suppress even the truth that there is a God. And practically that looks like I do not acknowledge Him and I do not thank Him. We all know as parents... Those are two of the most basic things you can teach your children. When you come into the presence of an adult, acknowledge it. Acknowledge you are in the presence of that adult. Look him in the eye. Be polite. When he says something to you, you say something in response. If he speaks to you, you speak to him. Basic 101 child rearing. And with it comes, you say thank you. Right? And this is, is, well, this is just basic stuff. You acknowledge that adult. And you say thank you. I think as parents, when we were teaching those kids those things, we, don't ha- we didn't even understand how much we were, we were orienting them toward God in doing that. And parents that don't teach those children, their children those things are facilitating a movement away from God. 
This is basic. Those who knew God and they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. And they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And then the first of three exchanges. We sometimes like to speak about the exchange life. where We exchange our life for the life of Christ. These are three exchanges for death. Number one, verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image and form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed creatures, animals and crawling creatures. They exchanged the glory of God for the glory of the creature. And we see it all around us. People would rather devote their lives to saving cats and dogs than to being saved, than to knowing the Savior. We, we will take all kinds of credit and devote our lives to things that just simply are vanity because they're the pursuit of the creation of the creature rather than the creator. It's an exchange of what is significant for the less significant. The second exchange that he mentions is in verse 25. For they exchange the truth of God. Verse 23, the glory of God they exchange. Verse 25, the truth of God they exchange for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So they don't just focus on the, crea- on the creature. They worship and serve the creature, the creation, and not the creator. And it's like God says, how can you make sense of that? Every single thing in this world points to the Creator. And you spend your life focusing on the creation? It's a lie. The creation can't give you life. Only the Creator can. But we exchange the truth of God who is the Creator for the lie of worshiping and focusing on the creation. And then the third exchange, verse 26 Middle of the verse, for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. They exchange the, the glory of God for the glory of an animal. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they exchange even their own natural function for that which is unnatural. Clearly speaking of homosexuality. And in response to those three exchanges which man willfully makes. And make no mistake, you can only exchange what you have. You go down to the customer service at Walmart and make an exchange you got to have something to exchange. And these people are exchanging something that they have. And it all points to God. They exchange the glory of God, the truth of God, and even their own natural function as male and female, which in itself points to God. 
And so to say that men have no knowledge of God and then God sentences them to hell is itself a lie. Men have knowledge of God. It may not be sufficient knowledge to know of Jesus and to be saved. But it is sufficient knowledge to be without excuse. And in that knowledge, if they will acknowledge God and give thanks to God, God will lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus. He is searching the world, looking for the heart that is inclined to him that he might strongly support that person. He desires for no one to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God longs for the salvation of every soul in this world. It is his longing of his heart. And man is without excuse if they will not respond to though it be a limited knowledge, to the knowledge that God has given in conscience and in creation. And not just simply not acknowledging, but again exchanging what they do know for what is a lie. And in response, the wrath of God is today being revealed. Three times in, exchange, in response to the three exchanges, God says, He gave them over. Verse 23, remember, they exchanged the glory of God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over. And then they exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. This is the wrath of God. Now. We've all known people, maybe we've experienced it ourselves. Going back to the analogy of parents and children who parents have, in, have endured incredible heartache from their children year after year after year. And in love for those children, they feel that they must continue to bear with them. God is a loving Father, and He bears with us incredibly. He's going to say in chapter 2 that that very forbearance of God The kindness of God ought to lead us to repentance. But he also says this, the day comes when our good and loving Father says, no more. I will not oppose you anymore. I will not resist you anymore. This is what you want. I'm taking my hands off of you. It is God's judgment. And it is God's wrath. When a person is no longer apparently getting in trouble for their sin, it may be because God has taken his hand off their lives. My mom used to pray for us when we were boys. God, let them get caught. And we did. It was amazing. It's like we couldn't get away from anything. I wondered something, you know, she said, I've got eyes in the back of my head. And we believed her. I wanted to part her hair just to see those eyes back, back there. I look back now and realize that, you know, a lot of it's just we weren't as smart as what we thought we were. 
God says. We can resist Him. An unbeliever can resist God and get to the point where God says, I'm not going to resist you any longer. God will not strive with man forever. And so a person, again, I believe this is a person who doesn't yet know Christ. They can get to that point to where it appears that there's no conviction anymore for what they do. It appears like their life is as obstinate and stubborn as, and, and just flat out rebellion against God that it is. It doesn't seem like the roof's falling down on them. The psalmist wrote about this in a couple different places and said, God, I, I look on the evil man and how he prospers and, and it just and it frustrates me. One psalmist says, fret not yourself because of the evildoer who prospers in his way. His day of judgment is coming. But it may be that the evildoer prospers in his sin because God has stopped opposing him. He has turned him over. And he is storing up wrath for the day of wrath. This is sobering stuff. It is a good thing to be under the conviction of God. It is a ministry of God in our lives. It is a loving God who is speaking into our lives and saying no. And we hate to hear no. But a loving God says no. He doesn't say no just to his own children. He also says no to those who aren't his children in the hope that that no will resonate in them as the voice of God and that they will come to God and say, God, I don't want to rebel against you all my life. Yes, God, yes. Many have observed a natural digression here, not progression, digression where it starts with just not acknowledging God, not giving thanks to God, becoming futile in our speculations, and moving down into just blatant disregard for how God has made us. Women exchanging the natural for what is unnatural. Men burning in their desire for one another. It doesn't get much worse. But just so that we don't think, well, I'm not there yet. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm not yet under the wrath of God. Maybe yet I have some hope of just kind of skirting by and not coming under God's discipline. I think that that, this is the low point. Verse 27, when a a society has so moved from God and jettisoning everything that witnesses of God, That has got to be the low point. But it is not the only grounds for God's wrath. Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now he's just been speaking about homosexuality. He says it's not natural. But not only is it unnatural, it is not proper. And both things condemn it. But that's not the only thing that's not proper. 
And then he lists in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parent, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Maybe we're not guilty of homosexuality, maybe not even tempted toward it. God says, don't think you're without excuse. Don't think that you are exempt from my wrath. All these other things are worthy of death. Every one of them. And then beyond that, People get so hard toward God that not only do they scoff at that what they're doing is worthy of death, the very judgment of God, they give hearty approval to others who do the same thing. And how much we're seeing that today. People glorying in their shame and loving to hear it when other people do the same. And it has to be the lowest of the low is when children are solicited into their sin. The wrath of God. It's been described as pure and perfect antagonism to evil. As God acting in revulsion against sin. His deeply personal abhorrence of evil. It's been described as as His holy hostility to evil. His refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. His just judgment upon it. It is not the irrational, uncontrolled emotion of men often mixed with malice, vanity, animosity, and the desire for revenge. It is God hating sin. What arouses the wrath of God? Nothing arouses it except evil. And evil always does. And God says that begins with denial of him, disregard of him, and dishonoring him as God. Not even thanking him. Of all those verses that speak of the wrath of God, there are many that talk about what particular things aroused it. Here we see this list in Romans. Other things that are mentioned are not listening to or obeying God's word. Forsaking God and turning to the various idols. Pride, profaning the Sabbath, speaking what is not right concerning God, not honoring or worshiping the Son of God, and injustice. Those and many more scripture lists as grounds for God's wrath. Against whom is it revealed? As we've seen here, against all those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, in order that they might go their own ways. Scripture tells us that all the nations which do not obey Him will come under the wrath of God. The enemies of God will know the wrath of God. All who do not obey the Son shall know the wrath of God. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. And again, this is the present tense. A person who refuses to put his faith in Christ. 
He is under the wrath of God presently. The stubborn and the unrepentant, Romans 2.5. And in Revelation 14, all those who worship the beast and take the sign of his name, the number of his name, are under the wrath of God. How is it revealed? Again, not just by fire and brimstone coming down from heaven, but in Romans 1, by God not intervening. Not by his intervention here, but by his not intervening. The wrath of God is being revealed now. And make no mistake, our good and benevolent Father and Jesus, the Lamb of God, are the dispensers of the wrath of God. Revelation tells us that the wrath will come from the one who sits on the throne and from the Lamb of God. We'd like to think of Jesus as just being meek and mild. And the scriptures say he is much more. And I can't make him the God of my imagination. I like that, that last line in C.S. Lewis's um, one of his Narnia things. We're speaking of the lion, Aslan. They said, he is a lion, but he is not tame. I would hope that all of this would bring us to the question, what must I do to be saved? Because the wrath of God is very real. It should, it should disturb us. God is not going to be out of his mind angry. He's not that kind of God. But he is a God of wrath. And his wrath is upon all those who do not put their trust in Jesus Christ. It's a sobering, sobering reality. What must I do to be saved is the only reasonable response. To act as though it's not going to happen is the height of folly. If your trust is in a good God, and God is good, you must understand that His very goodness, His virtue, demands the punishment of sin. You cannot rightly trust in a good God and not simultaneously fear God. What must I do to be saved? Romans 5, 9 tells us, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Jesus is the Savior from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 tells us that we are to wait from his, for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us, His children, for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who have put their faith in Jesus, Jesus is our Savior from the wrath of God, as well as from our sins. In Acts 16, 30 and 31, they asked that simple question, Sir, what must I do to be saved? 
And the response, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Believe on Christ. He alone is our Savior from the wrath of God. God is good. God is holy and righteous. And God is just. And because He is just, He is a God of wrath. And Jesus is our Savior. What must I do? Lord Jesus, save me. My trust is only in you. How could I ever, God, have any hope of standing before you in view of my sins? I could never work it off. I could never undo what I have done. I can only put my trust in the one that you gave for me. That your holiness and righteousness and justice would be satisfied. And that I might fully enter into the benevolence of God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus, save me. Believe on Him and you shall be saved. Let me close this in prayer.